luck. <laughs> Amen. And thanks, Brady, for all that, more or less. Well, good morning. Happy Reformation Day. Happy Halloween. Happy Flying Pig. There are a lot of things going on today. And uh, as Brady said, welcome to the kids. So glad that you guys are in here with us. Um, when, when we look around and we see young and old, we get this bigger picture of what the kingdom of God is like, a better picture of the church. My prayer is that we uh, would see more of the kingdom of Christ and all of its wonder, wonderful diversity as, as we press on toward the kingdom of Christ. Um, as I was planning, knowing that there were going to be kids in here, I thought I was, you know, I would shorten my sermon some. I was hoping to be in about 30 minutes, but then I used this words-to-minute calculator online, and uh, apparently I, I'm in, incapable of writing a shorter sermon, so I'm just going to say everything faster. Hopefully we can get done. So today uh, we're continuing our study of Paul's letter to the Philippian church. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Philippians chapter 3. It'll be on the screen as well. But I want to prepare us to hear this passage uh, by saying that I really have one message today. One main thing that I want you to hear from this passage, and that one thing is this. Are you guys ready? Here it is. Christians are Captain Marvel. So that's my main point. All Christians are Captain Marvel. Who has seen Captain Marvel? Show of hands. It is one of Marvel's most okay movies. It's fine if you haven't seen it. You can, there's a plot synopsis online you can check out. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about the plot a little bit right now. So if you haven't seen it and you don't want it to hear any spoilers, just cover your ears. Um, Vares, who is going to become Captain Marvel, has forgotten that she's human. She's forgotten that she's from Earth. She's living on another planet, going by another name. Uh, but she has dreams, these little glimpses from time to time of her life on Earth that she has forgotten, and the Kree, this sort of the bad guys, the, the, the alien race, um, is trying to keep her from remembering. They're trying to keep her distracted, and, and they've installed a device in the back of her head um, that keeps her from accessing her superpowers. Then she crashes on Earth, and when she starts to, she starts to remember things, it reminds her of who she is, and eventually she removes this Kree implant, and she has access to all of her powers, and... Uh, we find out that she's basically indestructible and saves the day, you know, so just like us. Amen. We do have superpowers. Yes, we're going to see from Philippians 3 that we are aliens living in this world. This world is not our true home, but living in this world has this effect on us. It like induces amnesia and we're prone to forget there are distractions everywhere, and then we are plugged into these devices that cause us to lose our power. Just like Captain Marvel, we need other people, people from our home, to remind us of who we are and what it means to be citizens of this foreign place. These people remind us of what our people do and how our people talk. But there's one big difference between us and Captain Marvel, and that is that there's no spaceship that we can get in uh, to go to our home planet. And even if we did have a spaceship, this place isn't the kind of place you can get to by ship. So we'll see in our passage today that what we have to do is wait. So we live as aliens in a foreign country while we wait for our alien king to return. 
And one theologian named Stanley Hauerwas says that we are um, resident aliens, which is his way of saying that we are aliens. We do belong to another place. We are citizens of another country, but we live here. And so we settle in. As the prophet Jeremiah says, we plant gardens and we get married and have children and join the PTO or the city council and we work, go to work and we pay our taxes. But this isn't our true home. And so uh, as we prepare to get into Philippians 3 today, I want to let you know where we're going to go. We're going to see three P phrases. This is my first alliterated sermon. You're welcome. Three phrases that contain two P words. It's sort of a tongue twister, so get ready. Here it is. We are not perfect, but we press on. That's one. We pay attention and pattern our lives. And three, we are patient and planted. So one more time, here are the three phrases, so be listening for this as we go through. We are not perfect, but we press on. We pay attention and we pattern our lives. And then finally, we are planted and patient. Now let's read our passage for today. This is Philippians 3. We're going to read uh, starting at verse 12, and then we'll read up until uh, 4, verse 1. This is Paul, his letter to the Philippian church says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything, and if, anything uh, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join me. Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior the lord jesus christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself therefore my brothers whom i love and long for my joy and crown stand firm thus in the lord my beloved so first our first p phrase we are not perfect but we press on the passage begins not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. So we stop there and we say, what is Paul talking about? What has he not obtained? To get a good sense of what he's talking about, we have to go back a few verses. So let's back up to verse 8 and see the things Paul has not achieved. He, he says this, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain, attain the resurrection from the dead. All of this is what Paul says, I haven't obtained it yet. 
the righteousness that comes from faith in Jesus, knowing Christ, knowing the power of his resurrection, sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and, and attaining the resurrection from the dead. I haven't obtained these things. Paul is saying, I'm not perfect, but there is a, there's a determination and a passion in his voice. You can tell that he's longing for them. He's driven toward them. He's ambitious for these things. He says, I'll do whatever I can by any means possible to achieve this goal that he presses on toward. And maybe you've heard people say things like, I haven't arrived or none of us has arrived. This is sort of an odd way of saying I'm not perfect, but it's a good picture of what Paul is saying here. He's saying I'm headed somewhere. I'm on the way, but I'm not there yet. And I want you to hear this, brothers and sisters in Christ, not one of us has arrived. And this is a much better news than kind of a flippant, nobody's perfect, because we are on the path toward perfection. Perfection is, in fact, our goal, but we will be perfected in the passive voice. Hear what the Apostle John says about this in uh, chapter 3. This is 1 through 3 of 1 John He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now. We are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So Christian family, what we read here is that each of us will be perfected. But it isn't this sort of checklist morality that we'll finally live up to. It's this, that we will be made like the one who is truly human. The one who is the image of the invisible God. We have all sinned, which means we've missed our target the thing that we were aiming at, being images of God in this world. But John says that when we see him who is perfection, we will be made like him. When that happens, we won't deserve it, and it won't be at the end of a long life of striving and trying really hard, but we will receive it, and we will say thank you. We will worship God forever. You... And this is, you know, all of us, but kids, listen. You are not perfect. Jesus knows the worst thing you've ever done. And Jesus knows the most evil thought you've ever had. And he loves you. Hebrews 4 tells us that Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness. He knows what it feels like to be human and to be tempted. This idea of feeling what other people feel is called empathy. This is really incredible. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God who is revealed in Jesus, is the only God who has empathy for humans. He's the only God to have put on skin and to to be in a woman's womb, to get hungry and tired and cold. No other religion's God even claims to have felt what humans feel. And thank God that Jesus knows our weakness. He empathizes with us. Let's read on. uh, Let's start with verse 12. He says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, 
but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if, if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have obtained. So Paul here, um, he's saying like all of us, he's not perfect, but despite that he presses, he presses on. He's using a metaphor here, and a metaphor about what? About running a marathon. That's how good we are, guys. We planned this. We didn't plan it. I'm kidding. It's a, it's, a, it's a metaphor about a marathon. He's running a long race, and it's hard. We can tell from his language of pressing on and striving forward that there's a temptation to stop. There's a temptation to turn to the right or the left. He's tired. His knees are hurting. He's hungry. He wants to go home and take a nap, but he presses on toward the finish line, toward that prize. I was just thinking, if you, if you could go to mile 21 of the flying pig... And just, if you could see little thought bubbles above everyone's head of what they were thinking. Could you imagine people fighting with themselves? I'm not going to make it. I could just stop now. My knees hurt. My feet are blistering. But they press on for the prize. Bagel, bagels and orange juice. <laughs> it's worth every mile. So we press on and Paul says he forgets what is behind. We read about that last week, all that rubbish that he once counted gain, he now counts as loss and he leaves it behind and he presses on toward the goal of knowing Jesus, resurrection power and all the rest that we see in the previous verses. He keeps running, forgetting all those things. And now, brother and sister, if we just stopped here, we would land in legalism. There'd be no gospel the, the message, you may feel a nice kick in the pants as you go out the door, go and press on, but ultimately you would be hopeless and crushed and defeated. So the question is, where is Jesus in this? This wonderful voice, uh, verse, Paul says, uh, verse 12, I press on to make it my own because Christ has made me his own. I like how the, the Christian Standard Bible says it. I make every effort to take hold of it because I have also been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. It's this wonderful paradox. Jesus has taken hold of me. I am held tightly in his hands. And this is the very cause. He says it's because. It is the very foundation of my pressing on is that he holds me. Knowing Jesus is my goal. So it's this wonderful circle. I'm held by him which causes me to pursue him. Verse 14 says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So we also see that Jesus is there calling us onward toward the goal. Paul's continuing this, this marathon metaphor where he's saying, Jesus is there. He's got the handmade sign and he's saying, keep going. You're going to make it. And if we remember in Philippians, we've already heard Jesus say, or Paul says this about Jesus. I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. He knows you're going to make it to the finish line. He's ensured it. 
In chapter 2, he also says, Therefore, beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So we're pressing on, but what we see in all of these passages is that Jesus is there at the beginning, taking hold of us and sending us out at the start line. Jesus is there at the finish line, calling us on. And Jesus is there working in us. It's like he's the the sports drink that we need to keep going. The metaphor starts to break down a little, but... So that's our first point. We are not perfect, but we press on. And the, the other points will move a little faster. But I want to take a, a slight excursion here because it is Reformation Day. This is uh, the day when we remember that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. This is seen as the beginning of the Reformation. What I want to say is we are a Reformed church. Uh, for some of you, that's why you're here. Talk to people who say, oh, I saw you on a Nine Marks website or something, and you're here because we're a Reformed church. Others of you are just finding this out for the first time, and you're maybe thinking, how soon can I leave? <laughs> Others of you don't know what I'm talking about. Not, not, all that's fine. But we are Reformed, and we always have been. But here's what I want to say really bluntly from this passage. Christians do stuff. Put that as simply as I can. Christians do stuff. So if you think that as Reformed Christians, we believe that God does everything while we sit by and let it play out like it was already gonna, that ain't it. Paul says, I press on. There's a determination in his voice. He is straining forward to what lies ahead. Now, in in my eight years here at this Reformed Church, I have never once heard that the good news of Jesus is that we sit idle while history just sort of unfolds around us. So, brothers and sisters, hear this, that we are called to go. Jesus calls us to go and make disciples in Matthew 28. Paul in Romans 10 says, how will anyone believe if they don't go, if they don't hear it? If no one tells them, we're called, as we've just seen, to work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. We're called to walk in the Spirit and do good works, to press on, to strive forward. We believe in prayer. We pray to God and we expect that He answers and hears our prayers. This is the wonderful news that we celebrate is that Paul also shows that all of this pressing on is because Jesus has taken hold of us. It's not so that Jesus will take hold of us. It's a wonderful difference there. So the Reformed tradition does not now, nor has it ever taught that Christians are passive in the mission of God. So I want to prove it to you a little bit. Uh, Listen to this from John Calvin's Institute of the Christian Religion. So after acknowledging the fact that we are imperfect, he says this. What then? Let that target, that target of perfection, be set before our eyes at which we are earnestly to aim. Let that goal be appointed toward which we should strive and struggle. Therefore, let us not cease to act that we may make some unceasing progress in the way of the Lord. And let us not despair the slightness of our success. For even though attainment may not correspond to desire, when today outstrips yesterday, the effort is not lost. Only let us look toward the mark with sincere simplicity and aspire to our goal 
not fondly flattering ourselves, nor excusing our own evil deeds, but with continuous effort striving toward this end, that we may surpass ourselves in goodness until we attain to goodness itself. It is this indeed which through the whole course of life we seek and follow, but we shall attain it only when we have cast off the weakness of the body and are received into full fellowship with him. It's good news. It's a lot of words. John Calvin is saying we strive on toward the goal of perfection which will be ours when we see Jesus. It sounds like Calvin had been reading Philippians 3. One more example. I want you to see this from the Heidelberg Catechism. This is one of the confessional statements. There are three sort of major statements that unite all Reformed churches. It's a question and answer. The question is, what do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? The answer is, I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no longer remember any of my sins or my sinful nature, which I need to struggle against all my life. Rather, by grace, God grants me the forgiveness of Christ to free me forever from judgment. There is no tension. There is mystery, but there's no tension between God's sovereign rule and reign and human action, will, and responsibility. And the point is that we press on. When we hear Paul's call to press on, we say, yes, amen. So happy Reformation Day. Now we move on to our second P phrase. Pay attention and pattern your life. Verse 17 says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, we need to pay attention. <laughs> this is subtle, uh, pay attention. Paul says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The CSB translation says, pay careful attention. Now remember that we are aliens, but this world causes us to forget. Causes us to forget the ways of our true home. So we are paying attention, looking closely, looking for those fellow aliens among us who can show us what our true home is like. If we watch closely, we will see how people live. It shows us where they are headed. Paul tells us that some reveal that their end, the place that they will end up, is destruction. What we will see if we pay careful attention to these people is that their God is their belly. This is Paul's way of saying that they obey their appetites. When they want something, they, they eat it, they drink it, they watch it. They do it. There are many people today whose gods are their bellies. They obey every appetite. And if we're honest, we're tempted to envy them. We make TV shows about them. We reward their foolish behavior with millions of views on YouTube. And we laugh and we ooh and awe watching as they travel this path to destruction. So their, 
God is their belly, and Paul says they glory in their shame. Glory in their shame. This could be the motto of social media. YouTube. I don't know if you guys have heard of this website. YouTube. TikTok. People do and say shameful things, and they're proud of it, and they're made famous for it. And this is a message, I'm glad to say this with the kids here, but this is a message for all of us. Be careful and stay away from people who are famous for being famous. There are all kinds of pretty people who will let you follow their lives via their vlog or whatever. These people show us clearly that they are citizens of earth. Their end is destruction. It is good to ignore them. As Paul warns the Corinthians church, to be infants in evil. But we can still pay attention. We will see them. Pay attention and watch. They look so happy. Are they? Pay attention. But these people are contrasted with those whose citizenship is in heaven, fellow aliens. What will you see when you pay attention to these ones? You will not see a prudish rejection of all the stuff of the world, but you will see a deep delight that points beyond the immediate, beyond just our appetite in the moment, toward God as the true giver of goodness and Jesus, for whom all things exist. They all glorify him. So pay attention to see if they do things with grumbling and complaining, or if they have the mind of Christ, thinking back a chapter in Philippians. See if they look after their own interest only or if they look after the interest of others. Pay attention. Does their lives produce love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? If you pay attention, you'll see that these strange people, these aliens, will have language that is gracious Seasoned with salt, as Paul writes to the Colossians. Shaped by God's word and full of life. While the world is quick to justify themselves, these people will be quick to confess their own faults and to find what is praiseworthy in others. So pay attention. And then the second part of this P phrase is to pattern your life after these kinds of people. So don't just watch them, but watch them and be like them. That doesn't mean we idolize them because true Christians will be quick to tell you, just like Paul, they are not perfect, but they're pressing on. So we learn from them and we do what they do. Paul tells the Philippians in this passage, watch me and be like me. He says something really similar in 1 Corinthians 11 and he adds a little bit more uh, context here. He says there, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. So the Philippians should want to be like Paul because Paul is being like Jesus. Verse 20 shows us how all of this works to re-alien us. That's a word I wrote down. I said it. It's not a real word. May we be re-aliened. It says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. As resident aliens, we need to find our fellow citizens of heaven and learn from them. Find those who are closer to the finish than you are. 
And kids, hear this. Find those who are closer to the finish than you are, who are more mature. Bonus points if they have white hair or no hair. (laughs) How do mature Christians who've been walking with the Lord for 30 years spend their money? How do they raise their kids? How do they think about their work, their vocation? How do they make disciples? Watch them and listen to them and pay attention. And then... Do what they do. Pattern your life after theirs. Now we come to the final P phrase. Be patient and planted. So let's read the last of our passage today, starting with verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. So first, we must be patient. We are citizens of heaven. We, we live here on earth. And we are waiting for our Savior to come from heaven. There's a lot I want to say here, but not the time to say it. There's so much sort of good theology crammed into this bit. I'll just say this, that the present earth, Paul tells us in Romans, is pregnant with new creation. The present earth is pregnant with heaven. Heaven isn't floating out in the cosmos somewhere, like out, you know, Saturn's rings, and then heaven is just on the other side. Remember, we can't get there, even if we had the best spaceship that could go the speed of light. We cannot get there by a ship. So let's listen to what Paul says in Romans 8. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I'm going to skip a few verses, and then he continues. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul tells us that we wait. We wait eagerly. What are we waiting for? We're we're waiting, he tells us, for our Savior, Jesus, to return. When he returns, we know that the dead will be raised Our bodies will be transformed to be like Jesus' glorified body. We are waiting for this prize that Paul says we're pressing on toward, a kingdom that can't be shaken. Some of this language gets lost in the English, but this is all about Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as King. When he returns, he brings resurrection and new creation, truth and justice All the powers that have been waging war against the holy God from the beginning will be squashed once and for all as King Jesus sits on his throne. So we are patiently waiting for this to happen. And finally, we see that we must be planted. Paul says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Psalm 1 gives us this planted language. It contrasts a person who stands in the place of the wicked with one who is planted like a tree by the river. 
Standing firm in the Lord is like being planted, like a tree that has deep roots. And Psalm 1 says, how do you become planted like one planted by the river? It says, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. We stand firm by delighting in God's law, meditating on his word day and night. That's our P phrases. We aren't perfect, but we press on. We pay attention and pattern our lives after other citizens of heaven. And we are patient and planted. And and so as I conclude today, I want to look at two final aspects of this picture that Paul's painting. And I want to go back a little bit to a section that I skipped over. He says this in verse 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So here we are. This is our situation. We are aliens. We are waiting for the return of our Savior King, seeking now in this situation to live like citizens of heaven. Paul says that the mature should think this way. We should hear in this passage resonance with things Paul has been saying all throughout his letter to the Philippians. He says, think this way. In chapter 2, he says, have this mind among yourself. Very similar to think this way. I love love how confident Paul is. I mean, it's almost flippant and odd how he just says, well, if some of you disagree, God will reveal it to you. He just moves on. I want to confess to you that this doesn't ring true to me today. This is hard to believe that Paul just says, and if you disagree, God will reveal it to you. I read an article this week in the Atlantic called The Evangelical Church is Breaking Apart. I read that this week. I've read several other such articles. I see the truth of what this article says in my own experience. I feel the temptation of what the article represents in my own heart. It feels to me like this breaking apart is a movement in the wrong direction, and it it breaks my heart. So how can Paul just say, God will reveal it to you? So there are two things as I end that I want you to see in this passage that I hope will encourage us. I hope it encourages me about this paradigm of being citizens and how it brings unity as we seek maturity. There are two things. First of all, we have the same goal. As we press on, we have the same goal. The rule of Christ and his kingdom, the kingdom of which we are citizens even now. So imagine that we all wanted to go to the same place, maybe New Zealand. It's not a Lord of the Rings thing. I just asked my wife yesterday, name a place. So it doesn't matter where we start, but if we press on to the goal, New Zealand, Eventually, if we press on, our paths will cross. If we don't give up the journey, we will meet along the way to New Zealand. So first, Paul can say this confidently, because as we are seeking maturity and pressing on, we will align. Second, we have the same spirit in us that is working in us to bring about this new creation. If we are pressing on to new creation, the kingdom of Christ, we can be assured that we aren't walking in the wrong direction. 
as we set out, like let's all go to New Zealand and we all just start in different directions. No, not if we have the same spirit working in us. So I think the role of the spirit is implicit in this passage, but I think it's there and it's clear if you pay attention. So the passage says that Jesus will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So what is that power that will transform our bodies? What is the power that enables Jesus to subject all things to himself? Paul makes this clear in Romans 8. Let's read. He says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So we see here the Holy Spirit is the power of resurrection, that third person of the Trinity doing what he's doing all throughout Scripture, hovering like a bird and bringing new life, new creation. And he's doing this in us, brothers and sisters, in the church, who he is building up as his own temple. So there's a a line from a Sandra McCracken song. Uh, She had gone through a divorce involving an affair and her husband abandoning the faith. I picked on him in another sermon. It's not like I stew on these things, but... (laughs) She'd gone through this terrible experience, and after this experience, she wrote these lines, and I love them for how simple and kind of wonderful they are. She, She wrote this, But if it is not okay, then this is not the end, and this is not okay, so I know this is not... This is not the end. I love the simplicity and kind of wonderful truth contained in those lines. She's not singing about a vague hope or some cheap, flippant, "Ah, it'll all work out, God closes a door and opens a window kind of thing. But she's writing these lines out of a deep confidence and a hope as she's watching the things around her crumble, things that had given her stability and meaning and identity are falling apart, and yet she is able to say with confidence that she is a citizen of heaven, and from heaven her Savior will return. If we look around and we see injustice, we know this is not the end. When we see sin in our own hearts, we can say this is not the end. So this is why we can have hope that the fracturing of the church that is going on today will be okay in the end. Because when our alien king Jesus comes back, he will separate the sheep from the goats, the earth people from the heaven people. He will judge rightly and justly. He will establish justice forever. forever. Because that spirit of resurrection and new life is working in us, pointing us toward his kingdom, we can have confidence. We can have confidence that what he has promised he will do in us. So I want to end by reading a passage that links all these ideas together. And then I'm going to talk about communion a little bit and then I'll pray. And we'll celebrate the supper together. This passage is Philippians 1, um, verses 27 through 30. Listen as I read this and hear the themes that we've talked about today and how they're all held together. He says, Above all, you must live as citizens of heaven, aliens, 
conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Jesus, about Christ, then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together in one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself, for you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We are in this struggle together. You've seen my struggle in the past, and you know that I'm still in the midst of it. Now we turn our, our hearts toward the table, toward the Lord's Supper. Would you, um, we don't normally do things this way, would you go ahead and stand? The band can make its way up, start playing softly. The Lord's Supper is a chance for Christians week after week to be reminded of our true home and where our citizenship is. It is the meal of our people, the food of our people. And it foreshadows a great feast. Isaiah 25 talks about the Lord preparing a feast of the best wine and the richest meats. This meal is a small taste of the meal that we hope to, to, to have when Jesus returns. It says he will serve it again, but it won't be a piece of bread and a sip of wine. It will be a lavish meal, and we long for that. And so if you're a Christian today, begin preparing your heart by confessing sin. Remember the ways that we are prone to forget We're prone to forget who we are in Christ. We're prone to be turned to the right or the left, distracted. Confess those things and turn your heart back to the gospel of Christ now. If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, if you're not following Christ, please hear this call not to come and take this meal, which is a meal that Christians take to celebrate what Jesus has already done, but the call to receive Christ by faith. It is good news. It is a call from out of, out of death and in, into life. You can be made right with a holy God. Your sins forgiven. Um, you can be made ready to take this meal to celebrate with the church what Jesus has done in you. So you've heard about this language about being aliens today. So you can, it's not like, a, it's, not a, it's not a DNA thing. Aliens come from people from every tribe and tongue and nation you can be made right with God. Please consider that as Christians come forward. Um, if you have questions about what Christians believe or want to talk to somebody about Christianity, you can talk to me. Um, you can use the Connect card or you can talk to a Christian you know here today, but please consider it as Christians come forward. Those of you who are coming forward, take the time you need um, uh, to, to, to consider those things. Uh, you can come forward, take a piece of bread and a cup and go back to your seat. Um, I'm going to say a prayer when I'm done talking here. When, when, when I'm done... Um, Uh, the table will be open. You can come and take the meal and go back and then I'll lead us through uh, taking after this song. Um, Pray with me. Jesus, I thank you for these wonderful truths that we are um, citizens of heaven, that this is not our true home. God, I confess that there is a lot of shiny, distracting stuff in this world that, that turns our attention this way and that way. I ask now that by your spirit we would keep our gaze focused on your kingdom and, and, and not in a way that we become 
prudish and dull, but in a way that the things of this world that you've given us as gifts are now reoriented toward worshiping you, that we become people who, who press on kind of the determination in Paul's voice. May, that, may we have a fraction of that, that we know that what we are doing and what we are called to do is life and death, kingdom of God stuff. May we press on and be determined toward the goal that we might achieve the prize, that resurrection that awaits us at the end. The resurrection to new life in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus, I do want to pray for those who are here today who don't know you. God, may they hear this call to an an otherworldly life as good news, an invitation to be different and different in a way that is good, different in a way that is that, that is the good. By your spirit, draw those who don't know you. Um, draw them to see Christ as Lord and to say yes and amen to his rule over their life. I thank you, Lord, that even though we struggle today and tomorrow, we know that your spirit is indwelling us. You have called us temples of your spirit and that means we can be confident that we will have agreement in the gospel, we will press on, we will forget those things that have left behind, that we have left behind because you are working in us. Thank you for the good news of that, Lord. Impress it upon us now by your spirit. Pray these things in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.